0: Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit perkinscoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, we hear from Chicago-based U.S. District Judge and former Assistant U.S. Attorney Virginia Kendall. Judge Kendall discusses her journey from being a federal prosecutor to the bench and the compliance realities of organized forced labor in supply chains during the COVID-19 era. She also covers the inspiration for the anti-trafficking book she co-authored in 2012, the lagging enforcement of trafficking laws in the U.S. and abroad, as well as in the trenches advocacy and litigation tips for more junior attorneys who are perhaps making their first foray into a courtroom. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice.
1: Today's a very special day for the White Collar Briefly podcast, as well as for me personally, uh, our guest today is one of my favorite jurists, one of my favorite people in the world, and her name is Virginia Kendall, Judge Virginia Kendall from the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois in Chicago. She is, as you will hear, famously candid and engaged and really just down to earth. She has always been eager and, and, and happy to lend an ear, whether that's to a, uh, a student, uh, whether that's from the bench, uh, whether that's at a lecture at the University of Chicago Law School, And uh, she's perhaps most uh, famous and most well-known for her engagement in the area of human trafficking and also supply chains. And I say that with some level of self-interest because Judge Kendall and I, back in uh, 2012, published a book together about this topic, which we'll also talk about. And that book, it's now in a second edition as of 2017. And so I'd like to kick things off, Judge, by maybe you can give us a little bit about your background and also how you got involved in the fight against trafficked and forced labor and supply chains and elsewhere.
2: Oh, thanks Marcus. And thanks for having me on your podcast. I was a federal prosecutor, as you know, because we were together back in the day. And uh, I did a significant amount of child exploitation work involving the transfer of children across lines, across international lines and borders. And back when I was first prosecuting, we did not have anything like a human trafficking statute, of course. It didn't come into effect until the Palermo protocol was put into effect in the year 2000. So it was always an interest of mine to protect women and children in that regard. And as I learned more about the cases, there was always this heavy subcurrent of uh, humanity violations that we would see in cases that would make you stop in the middle of your investigation and say, how is this possible this is happening? How is this possible this is part of what's happening in the world and nobody's really looking at it in that light? And I think that was where it just naturally involved the trafficking statutes and the trafficking work. But the work in supply chains is something that has come from a lot of my international work, going overseas, training judges, judiciaries, training law enforcement uh, about uh, labor trafficking and seeing the tremendous toll that it takes on whole populace over in certain parts of the world. And it has a toll on our own, of course, but not as significantly as others.
1: And you know, one of the things I said at the outset is I used the term forced labor. And as you know, that includes trafficked and indentured and slave and child and otherwise coerced or non-volitional labor. So that's one of the things we we are trying to enforce or reinforce, which is the importance of sort of nomenclature. You know, anti-trafficking efforts certainly have picked up in terms of publicity and famous people talking about them how do you assess the current level of public discourse or for that matter of legal discourse on the topic of of trafficking or forced labor more broadly?
2: No question that when I started working in this field, there was very little discourse at all. And the fact that I am now teaching these courses at a number of different law schools shows that it has risen in the eyes of the younger population as a violation of law as a violation of international law all types of different areas of academia have certainly become much more involved where we see improvements are primarily in sex trafficking it seems to be what everybody's looking at it's the most sensational type and form and so people want to hear about that and that's where prosecutors with their efforts. But the truth is that there is so much labor trafficking and very, very little discourse about labor trafficking. And labor trafficking discourse is not being advanced in the same way in law schools as even sex trafficking, nor in law enforcement communities. And it's certainly not being discussed at the level that it should be in much of our corporate community.
1: Do you see sex trafficking as a subset of labor
2: trafficking? Always have. And uh, I always hate how people always try to separate them out. Always have. You're just selling your body and that's the labor, right? I mean, it's absolutely the same as far as it's definitely a subset. Now, the thing about labor trafficking, which I think is really hard for people to get their minds around is, we're here in the United States where we see somebody working and it's a good thing, right? You see somebody who's employed, this is a good thing. Somebody working hard, this is a good thing. We don't look at labor as being bad, right? We look at it as a positive for the community, for the economy. And so we're not really sniffing around to see how that chain is working to get to where we are with our final product. The other thing is, Is that there's just this tremendous misconception that labor trafficking has to include some kind of like people in cargo containers on the dock, as opposed to, you know, the Liam Neeson way of trafficking, as opposed to coercive behaviors, manipulative behaviors. And I think the more understanding that people have of that, the more they would recognize why that number is so high when we talk about it and why it's so prevalent
1: so judge we've talked a lot in the past and talked in some public appearances about the movie taken and how it creates maybe a slight misperception about the heartland of forced labor and one of the things that i wanted to ask you about is when when we look around and look at the products we use every day we go to the store we buy we consume i think most people may not think a lot about whether the product was made with or through forced labor in some form where do you see the Compliance frontier going, or do you see trafficking as part of the compliance frontier?
2: I do, and I see it going in an upward trajectory in a number of areas. One, in the area of enforcement, secondly, in the area of consumer awareness, and thirdly, in the area of corporate awareness. So let's step back for a second and just think about the movie Taken. I know people always asked me when I would lecture, you know, well, don't you think it's just a Hollywood version? And I said back in the day when it came out, hey, as long as it's getting the topic to people to have them think about it for once, I don't care what format it takes in the beginning, get them thinking about it. But it is true now. We're way beyond that with our knowledge in the community and taken as just a glorified kind of Hollywood esque version of trafficking. When what we're really focusing on when we're looking at labor trafficking is a coercive employer, a coercive pain in order to create a cheaper product, you know, that at less expense for themselves and that humanity, their human rights are being violated. And I don't think people understand that. So a couple of things about the trajectory. First, you and I have talked about this, about how there's an interesting parallel between the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and the supply chain laws that are percolating up all around the world. And I think that similarities start with that they're kind of lying dormant. They were very grandiose. They had a nice concept of criminalizing a behavior that all of us could wrap our minds around and yet once you put it into action, they're not enforced or they don't have any teeth, let's say. Now, I think that that's going to happen with our supply chain laws. I think that they're going to sit dormant for a while until we see an active state attorney general or a particular government that chooses to start collecting fines on these violations. And those fines will then pay for the continuation of this legislation. And this is what's happened with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. I mean, when they first didn't do anything about it, it sat there for years. And then within three years, the fines to corporations were like tripled, quadrupled, quintupled. I think we're going to see that at some point on the horizon, because I think we're going to see somebody take that same interest. The other thing I think you're going to see is as a result, and maybe at a same curve, hopefully the corporations are going to be at the same awareness level, they're going to start taking actions and their awareness is going to become greater and greater. It didn't take very many SEC fines to be meted out before corporations were knocking on the door of lawyers and saying, help me out. I don't want to have that happen to me, right? So I think you're going to have a parallel increase in <laughs> of the issues. And then all of this hopefully will be from a groundswell of the consumer. Because the consumer, the educated consumer, the enlightened consumer, wants to go into the store and wants to pick up whatever product she's picking up and look at it and say, this was not manufactured by children who were abused or by women who are being abused, et cetera. They like to get a good price point. Nobody can argue with that, but that price point, if it comes with knowledge that somebody was hurt in the manufacturing of this product, then that suddenly takes all the joy out of that purchase, right? So I think you're going to have that groundswell come up from the community, the consumers themselves.
1: And you know, that topic of how ubiquitous it is, how widespread the issue is. I think is often not understood correctly. In other words, those of us who spend our days traveling, at least pre-COVID uh, traveling right. and visiting factories and talking to people, it's a much more, as you said earlier about, you know people aren't shackled to the walls generally. It's very subtle and it's not that easy to see, but it's much more widespread I think than a lot of people realize. And so one question I had when you mentioned enforcement, right? So we understand the incentive structure for companies. I've never run into a company that said, hey, how can I avoid human trafficking laws? But of course, it fines and things like that will always cause compliance to get beefed up. But on the enforcement side, so on the other side of the coin, on, on the prosecution side, what do you make of the fact that there's very few laws I can think of, certainly, that are more universally viewed and regarded as good, appropriate, worthwhile. I mean, being against trafficking, there's a very, very small and silent lobby in favor of trafficking. You have every movie star out there pontificating on the topic. You have every politician out there, you know, giving big talks about how this is a scourge that needs to be stamped out. What do you make of it that So little is being done, relatively speaking, by law enforcement, whether that's in the U.S. or abroad. As you said, you travel very frequently all around the world and speak with prosecutors and train prosecutors. What do you make of it? I mean, why is it that we don't see broader enforcement?
2: I think you're right first, if I can reiterate what you said about there really being a bipartisan issue when it comes to looking at laws and trafficking. And we've had Democratic presidents, Republican presidents, both have supported legislation in this area. So it's one of those wonderful areas where there is actually bipartisan support. But so then we should see this just kind of taking the world by storm, right? One would think. Let me say that the sex trafficking prosecution of children is the number one area where local prosecutors and federal prosecutors get their prosecution numbers from. And so it's easier for them to translate this crime back into some old crime that they know of, or it's like kidnapping, or it's like a force, or it's like a manipulation of a child. And so that kind of easy transferability makes those the prosecutions that everyone goes for. And there's a number of studies on this. You know, there's studies that show that the least likely case to be prosecuted is a case of an adult male labor trafficking, right? Um, Least likely to come into the prosecutor's office and go further. Now, why is that? I, I think there's so many factors. First of all, I think that We have a really difficult time looking at any kind of labor and saying that it's bad. And so if we say, oh, well, there's these people that are working in the kitchens or they're sewing or they're doing whatever, we don't look at that work site automatically and say there's something bad. So we drive by it. Like every day, you drive by the beautiful strawberry fields, right? You drive by the beautiful apple orchards on a beautiful day and you think, this is good. Life is good. And there's people picking the fruit for us. As opposed to looking beyond that and saying, where are they living? What are they being paid? How are they being housed? How are they paying for their own food, et cetera? And that kind of effort, there is just not a law enforcement initiative behind that right now. It's not numbered as a one, two, three in the FBI, a local law enforcement, et cetera. So number one, it's hard. So you have to actually have the person's determination to prosecute it. And then number two, once you're in there, you have all these victims who don't want to be cooperative. They're afraid of being charged themselves. They're afraid of law enforcement in general. They're afraid of immigration laws. And they're afraid of their families being split up. There's so many issues that confront them that they're not running to the police and saying, help me, help me, I'm a victim. And that natural victimization is what law enforcement is accustomed to. They feel good about protecting victims. They don't feel good about protecting someone whose arms are crossed and heads turned the other way saying, I don't want to talk to you. And so it's a lot harder for them to find these types of violations. And it takes trained law enforcement officers, trained in interviewing. It takes enlightened law enforcement officers, but it takes people with initiative who want to do it. And that initiative comes from those different law enforcement bodies.
1: You know, one of the things that I've heard you say is that you can have bribery without trafficking, but you can't have trafficking without bribery. And I know you've written an article, I think it was in Journal at Cornell, about bribery and trafficking. Tell us a little bit about your perspective on that. And again, as someone who has spent a lot of time overseas as well, you know, helping both train and also get a sense of the, the capacity of, of foreign prosecutors around the world. What, what's your sense of that linkage between trafficking and bribery? Or in the U.S., from the U.S. perspective, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations.
2: Right. I don't think that there is a trafficking ring that can occur without some type of foreign corrupt practices violation, or if it fits the other parameters. The bribery is hand in glove with corruption and human trafficking. It's just, it's the way it happens. And as part of the International Bar Association, I was on a a task force, and we decided to do a worldwide investigation into that connection between public corruption and trafficking. And unfortunately, it shows a lot of United States cases, but that's because we in the United States document our cases, right? We have the means of researching them through Westlaw and everything else. But it shows just a ton of different countries and areas of the world where everything from the people being paid to change documents to law enforcement officers being a part of the ring, Well, here in the United States and in other countries, police officers, embassy workers, people in immigration and border control. And so when we start to see this from what we could put together from countries that don't always have good record keeping with their case law, and we can document that through the International Bar Association, I think that it shows you that it's not just a theory, it's really a reality. Now, anecdotally, I could tell you it's a very big reality. I've interviewed hundreds of workers who are victims around the world. And I can give you an example of sitting in Cyprus in this little, I would call it like a little quadrangle where I was able to meet a few victims of trafficking there. And they had um, someone who was at the entrance to this quadrangle watching like as security. He wasn't looking for the traffickers who might come in and retrieve their product, you know, their trafficked victim, he was looking for the police who would retrieve the victim and turn her over to the trafficker, because that was how hand in glove the police were with the traffickers over in Cyprus.
1: By the way, just a listener note, if anyone wants to see a law that has incredibly sharp teeth, but has not been, as far as I know, pursued. Certainly not in any public sense. Uh, Have a look at the FAR rules on trafficking and government contracts. The government contract requirements when it comes to trafficking is an Obama era change in, in, in the regs is quite exceptional in breadth. It's quite exceptional in terms of the requirements that companies must immediately notify the government if they have reason to believe there might be an issue. It's just an interesting one for I know... Judge, you are very familiar with it, but it's just an interesting one for those listeners who are curious about the types of laws that they should worry about if they're in the the corporate environment, particularly if they have government contracts, which are many. That's one to look at. And of course, because I'm I'm a shameless self-promoter, as you know, Judge, I want to talk a little bit about the book that we wrote back in 2010 and 11 and then published it 2012. And then republished it as a second edition with, in twenty seventeen with a focus on supply chain impacts. Very, very, rare opportunity for me to quiz a, a federal judge. Do you remember why we wrote that book?
2: I, I remember the moment that <laughs> I remember the moment in time that we committed to writing it. if that's what you're talking about. We were at an ABA meeting. And we were discussing all of these different issues of just academics, lack of understanding, the public's lack of understanding and this just Constant ideological silo of yelling that was coming out of the discussions, as opposed to what we thought was a clear, kind of straightforward, calm discussion of the issues. And we were just really feeling our oats. And over a beer that was definitely clinked in the air, we said, We're going to write a book on this. (laughs) We're going to do it without all of that emotion and without all of that anger, without all of that craziness that really just takes away from the real message. And we tried to make it a treatise that you could look up. It, it covered defense and prosecution issues. It covered international issues. We want people to start thinking about this as any other legal area that should be discussed with the calmness and the fervor that comes with an academic
1: well, you know, speaking of academic discussions, of course, when Judge Posner cited to it in, in a couple of opinions, I think that made us feel like we might have hit uh, at least a partial, maybe a single or a double, if not a home run. But um, at least it did me as a kind of person who gets excited about that, that type of thing. But um, just a quick question about sort of obviously everyone, for good reason, is talking about COVID-19, is talking about the pandemic. And some people are very much focused on the supply chains and and sort of what is happening now in, in the wave of the shutdowns of factories and so forth. Do you have any thoughts on how COVID and the era we're living in, how compliance personnel should react in this time of tightened supply chains and maybe limited oversight?
2: I know that you and I both were talking early on during the pandemic when we were first having shutdowns and all I could think of was, oh no, this is just really a horrible situation because we've always looked at world issues that are like natural disasters. Let's say an earthquake, Haiti the earthquake in nepal right you always look at those kind of natural disasters as the fertile ground for traffickers to take advantage because what they'll do is when the government structure is down when the infrastructure is down when the rule of law is really up in the air they move in and they're opportunists you know they take advantage And so this is about as big of an opportunist market as you can imagine. So we've got a rather robust supply chain moving products around the United States to the wonderful joy and amazement of all of us who continually get our packages on the front porch. But those types of products that are being marketed, many of them now without anybody going through the supply chain to look at the source of who's creating this on such short notice, right? What kind of contracts were they workers? It's, it couldn't possibly be thrown together in the way that one would want a corporate supply chain to be put together with the kind of care and outward thinking of the issues. So all of this stuff that's coming into the supply chain is at tremendous risk of being created with traffic labor. And we see it in the past and we can document it in the past with Everything from these natural disasters to wars within factions within countries where that rule of law is broken down, and that infrastructure is broken down. And right now, I think it's pretty much an open game plan for the traffickers to get products out onto the market with little oversight.
1: Second reader note and second shameless plug, uh, if you're interested in more on this topic, you can see a Kendall Funk jam in Bloomberg Law uh, this March. uh, I think it was titled, There's No Social Distance Enforced Labor or something to that effect. So look, you've got like, just an unbelievable wealth of experience, both as a federal prosecutor, and again, I had the privilege and joy of working with you, including on cases like this. Also have, obviously, now the the exalted vantage point of a federal judge. And you've seen, I'm sure, a lot of really good stuff and a lot of really bad stuff, both from very seasoned attorneys as well as people who are in a courtroom perhaps for their first time. Kind of talking to the first-year associate or the first-year lawyer, for that matter, Are there any tips, and maybe we can break it into like things to do and things not to do. Are there some tips you have as a person who is a practitioner and who still obviously is a practitioner with a black robe on? What tips do you have for that junior attorney?
2: Please call the other side and not just email them or have your face-to-face call because so much of practicing law can be enjoyable if you get to know the opposing side and actually have a a good relationship with them where you can enjoy the, the litigation, right? Number one. So too many people seem to hide behind their emails and everything is documented and it's like the gotcha exam. You know, I got you because I said, unless you disagree by 5 p.m. tonight, you've agreed to it or something silly like that, right? So call each other. That's number one I would encourage. Also, I encourage you to recognize that the litigation is important but don't take yourself so seriously it's really fun to enjoy a little bit of a sense of humor while you're doing things it doesn't mean that you're less serious i'll tell you myself that when i started on the bench i was afraid to crack a joke because I thought, oh my gosh, they're all going to look at me as this former AUSA who is uh, just a criminal prosecutor and she doesn't know what she's talking about as she cracks a joke. Now I recognize that it just gives so much lightness to the proceedings and everyone calms down. When you're in front of a judge and you're talking with the judge, remember this is your time to talk to the judge. This is the time to enlighten the judge. Be helpful, be cooperative, be encouraging. Say, can I help you by... You know, pointing you to this or not. Don't say, Well, in my brief, you would have seen that this is blah, blah, blah. Because we read your briefs, right? Like we're ready for you. So it's much better to take the opportunity when you're in front of a judge to actually have a conversation with the judge. Explain why it's important to you to have this discovery. Explain why you need to have this deadline based upon the litigation. Explain the relevance of something. Explain, if you have to, sadly, the behavior of the opposing side. Explain it in a way where you say, listen, I've done this, 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 and this, and I keep coming up to a dead end. And unfortunately, I think this is highly relevant information and I had to bring it to you. That is the way you do a motion to compel for discovery or information. But if you come in kind of with guns a-blazing and you've got, it literally feels like you're gonna have a shootout in front of me, it's just stressful for you. It's stressful for me. And I am a much better listener when I'm listening to someone who's speaking with me than to somebody who's, you know, rattling off a tirade at me. And I think that's pretty much the case with everyone. So those are my basic tips. I don't think that during this time you should really forget about yourselves. I think this is a really tough time. I know, Marcus, I hope you and your firm are doing what we are doing in the judiciary, trying to check in with these younger associates, you know? A lot of them are sometimes alone in apartments or condos. And I don't think this is the way. They certainly plan to start out the legal career. So I know I'm trying to check in with my law clerks regularly and doing silly things like sending them you know, Lou Malnati's pizza and Garrett's popcorn to keep, them, <laughs> to keep them happy a little bit because it's a tough time. So uh, make sure you communicate with your partners and, and the people that are with you in the firm if you're having troubles because that is one thing that, is the sign of a professional to say hey this is really tough for me to do this
1: what a great way to end our time together and yes at perkins we are all about trying to help each other and we are trying to be as interactive as we can with each other's partners associates counsel staff as i'm sure all other firms are it is a incredibly unique and trying time i think for everyone including our clients and obviously as you pointed out for those many victims overseas who are, who are seeing a lot worse than we'll ever see. But I just wanna thank you so much for not only your time joining us today, but also just for your engagement in general in the law and, and the people who practice law and for caring as much as you do about people's happiness and people really having a satisfied and great career. I see it all the time in your law clerks who go on to great things. And again, on behalf of the White Collar Briefly mini pod, I just want to thank you for your time and hope you stay safe and happy.
2: Thank you
0: so much, Marcus, and you too. All right, take care, everyone. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly of Perkins Coie Minipod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.